We are still looking at Revelation chapter, we're going back to Revelation chapter 2. And the reason for that is because we're looking at two churches that are different than the five churches we just reviewed. And we'll look at one of those this morning, the church of Samarna, chapter 2, verse 8 through 11 of Revelation. Jesus, remember, is walking amongst his church. He's walking amongst his lampstands, and of course the lampstands are the church. And of course he has seven stars in his right hand, and those are the leaders, the elders, the pastors of those churches. The whole goal and mission of the church is to uphold the light, to share the light, the gospel light. If a church doesn't or stops sharing the gospel light for whatever reason, the Lord says in chapter 2, verse 5, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. In the last many weeks, we have been focusing our attention on five warnings the Lord gave to his churches. And all these warnings apply to all churches at all times during church history, right up until to this day, to examine us based on these things. The first warning was to the Ephesian church, and that warning was the church of declining love. The second warning was to Pergamum, allowing they allowed truth to slip. The third to Thyatira, that was compromising with sin within the church. The fourth was the church was warned about their complacency. That means they were just self-satisfied without being aware of the possible dangers of that. A fifth warning we looked at last week, and that was the church of Laodicea, and that was spiritual indifference. And indifference is really a lack of interest. You lost interest. You lost concern. Uh, you lost care for the things of God. And, of course, that kind of attitude to God is nauseating. It's lukewarm. And all that results in is vomiting them right out unless they repent. This Lord's Day, I would like to look at one of the two churches identified in Revelation that have no warnings, no condemnation. And it should be of great interest to us as to what is actually going on around and in that church that brings no condemnation from the Lord. Again, Jesus Christ the sovereign head of his church is walking amongst his people, and that means he is personally present. He is in their midst in order to examine their spiritual condition to see how they are doing. And of course, Samarna, this city, was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus in the area of Asia Minor. It was a city of great wealth, great beauty, possessing a stadium, possessing a library, a large public theater. It also had pagan temples of Sibyl and Aphrodite, Greek gods and 
Greek goddesses. And then it also had Caesar or emperor worship that was prominent. In fact, it was so prominent that those who were part of that were required to burn incense to the emperor. If they didn't, of course, consequences would come down. There was a large Jewish population that lived there. And, of course, it seemed to be a very, they had a very considerable influence upon the city, not so much religiously, but spiritually. Actually, not really religiously or spiritually, excuse me. Actually, it was in civil and political affairs they had the influence. The group acted uh, as a watchdog and constantly informed the Roman authorities about Christian activities that were going on. So this heightened persecution of believers, the Jewish leadership among, uh, along with some Gentiles formed the mob and called for the death of a local bishop, Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John. Polycarp was martyred in A.D. 160, more than 80 years after his conversion. He was a leading elder in Samaria and This word Samarina actually means myrrh or bitter. So it became a very dangerous place for Christians to live in a a place like Samarina. And so we look at the same thing as we looked at the other churches in Revelation chapter 2. Notice verse number 8, the character of Jesus. And before I look at that, let's pray. Lord, this morning, I do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity once again uh, to have the freedom to meet together and to be able to open up our Bibles, to be able to preach the Word of God, to be able to sit here relatively in peace. I pray, Lord, we'd never take advantage of that. And I pray, Lord, that we'd always consider it a great privilege to listen to the King of Kings speak to us. So always prepare us for that, Lord. And as we look at this particular church, teach us the characteristics that you dispel about yourself and about the church that would help us uh, today and in the future. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the character of Jesus, verse number 8, chapter 2 of Revelation. And the angel of the church in Samarna write, the first And the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Now, the Lord's character in this verse is put before uh, the church. And, of course, the evaluation and Christ's attributes have something to do with the evaluation of this church. And the first thing, it says that he is the first and the last. That Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, uh, is the first and the last He is the first, for by him all things were made, and he was before all things with God and was God himself. He is the last, for all things are made for him, and he will be the judge of all. He is the beginning of the story, and he is the end of the story. That means he has the final word on everything and everyone. He is the first, 
for by whom the foundation of the church was laid in this state. And he is the last, for by him the top stone will be brought forth and laid at the end of time. He is the first and the last. Secondly, he is he was dead. It says in verse number 8, he was dead. That means literally he died, affirming, of course, the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's, he lived again afterwards. Jesus was actually a man who died and died for our sins by dying to purchase salvation for us. But he is alive. He is God also. He rose again for our justification, and by his life, he applies salvation to those who come and believe in him as their Lord and Savior. He makes intercession for us even now. So death really never phased Christ. He just went right on living. And of course, that is affirmed in other places in Scripture. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Do not be afraid. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And then also, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty, meaning that he is, in verse number 18, the living one of chapter 1, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys that unlocks death and unlocks Hades. So we look at the historical books in Acts, and we see when the apostles were preaching, what did they preach? Well, in Acts 2.27, it says, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Very stressed in the, in the book, all through the preaching, that Jesus would never be abandoned to death and suffer decay like everyone else who dies. See, in other words, that for this group of people, if Jesus died and rose, then resurrection has a lot to do with how important it is to live at a time that this church lived. So we are reminded from this description that our Lord, uh, of our Lord, that we do not worship a dead man because Christ is alive. And he is able to work on behalf of his children in any age. Again, the Lord is about to evaluate their spiritual condition. And in his evaluation, we find that there is no condemnations. That means that Jesus, the evaluator, doesn't condemn this church for anything. His skillful eye finds not even the smallest grain of a bad word. When I consider when I consider that, when you when you consider that that the Lord has nothing to warn this church about, it should bring to our mind immediately I want to know why. Why the other five churches had warnings 
And this church has no warning. Why? Well, we do find the Lord begins to show us why in Revelation chapter 2, verse number 9. Here's the commendation to the church. The Lord knows everything about us. He knows everything we do. He and everything that we are going through. Here the Lord reveals how their life and their experiences are as believers living in Samarina, and he really gives three things they are experiencing. They are actually experiencing, and it really has to do with persecution. And the first thing in verse number 9 that they are experiencing, look at what the Lord knows. It says this, I know your tribulation. Delifus, trouble, distress, your hard circumstances. The word really meant to be crushed under the weight of something. The word, the, the actual word Samarna is related to myrrh. When crushed, myrrh produced a bitter fragrance. So in a similar way, when the church suffers, when she is going, when she's doing what is right and, and, and is pleasing her Lord, and persecution comes down on her for this reason, for that very reason, because they are living for the Lord, because they are living for what is right. It may seem bitter, but the sweet smell, the smell is sweet to the Lord. Bitter suffering, but sweet. To the Lord. We can even ask ourselves the question how, how do we smell? Do we smell fragrant to the Lord because we have been pleasing to Him and doing what is right and standing up for Him in our different fears of life and living? Or have we been basically silent? Nobody even knows we're a believer, nobody knows where we stand on things. So really, this has to do with a restricting pressure that burdens the spirit within that was going on in this church. It's like what Paul was saying to the Corinthian church, where he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, but thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, for we are a fragrance to Christ, a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one aroma from death to death, to another aroma from life to life. And of course he was speaking about, we're not like the other preachers who just peddle the word, we are actually preaching the word in sincerity and we are speaking in the sight of Christ and in the sight of God. So the first thing he says is, I know you're suffering. I know what you're going through for my sake. And then secondly, in verse number 9, he says the second thing in this verse, I know your poverty. The spiritual riches of this church are in contrast to the spiritual poverty in Laodicea. In this case, suffering made this body of believers 
They were poverty stricken, and really, it was not just—it was not just a lack. It was kind of a lack of everything, not just the essentials, because of their identity of being Christians. The term really means extreme poverty or complete destitution. You may be poor as far as the material wealth of the world, yet be spiritually, not be spiritually destitute. So we can ask the question, how does your spiritual bank account look to God? Is he able to say to you, I know your poverty? Because if you notice what else he says there, I not only know your poverty, and then you notice in parentheses it says, but you are rich. That's an amazing statement here. So now all the indicators point that there is some kind of financial hardship. Samaritan also had a had gills like our unions, which regulated the craftsmen in, in those particular cities. And because of the extreme hatred of Christians, when a Christian took a stand for Christ, often businesses and jobs were on the line. And perhaps the Jews and pagans had come against the Christians there and even pillaged their property as recorded in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, where it's recorded this, for you show sympathy sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better position, a lasting one. So brethren, if you just consider that, that the strength of one's faith to accept joyfully the seizure of your property, to accept joyfully the seizure of your property. How in the world could anyone do that? It seems like there has to be an exemplary attitude and understanding of theology and relationship to Christ for that to take place. Well, in the Hebrews passage of Scripture, it actually tells us how they're able to do it. It says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better position or possession, a lasting one. See, they knew that there would be a city whose builder and maker was God, and that's where they were heading. But just consider that for a moment, that if you're a Christian and you're involved with work and you take a Christian stand, and all of a sudden your job is on the line because you are a Christian. You know, recently, this past week, Chick-fil-A had to give up something. They had to say they weren't going to hold a certain position anymore. Uh, so obviously the, the pressure was on them to make that change, to, to not take a stand like they took before. And of course, the, the founder of that particular business had died, of, I think, about a couple of years ago. And, and now, of course, there are other people come into leadership, and they don't hold that stand. Now, there's probably a lot of reasons why they made that decision, but... You can see how a business who is trying to uphold a standard uh, for truth and for what is right and for honoring God, how it just comes under such pressure to keep that stand 
that if they don't keep it, they will lose that business. And that's probably something like what took place. But we all know that when you compromise in one area, it's just a matter of time before you compromise in another, before you compromise in another and another and another, until there is no stance. There's no more conviction. So in this case, if poverty equaled God not being near for blessing, then this church was in severe trouble. But if you look at verse number 9, you see that what Christ says, you are rich. He's evaluating them. He's saying, listen, you may not be spirit, I mean, physically rich, but you are spiritually rich. Many who are rich in the earthly realm are often poor in the spiritual realm. Some who are poor outwardly are rich inwardly. So that means that physical poverty has nothing to do with spiritual wealth. The church was rich in the things money could not buy. They were rich in the relationship with God. In fact, let's, let's look at a few passages. Look at, turn back to Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 21, and you see here in this parable, the Lord is telling a story, and he's concluding in a certain way. And what he's concluding, concluding is that a person could be rich toward God and yet not have, have a complete wrong view of wealth, physical wealth. And if you look at Luke chapter 12, verse 16, it says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. Verse 17, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Luke chapter 12, verse 18, Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now you will own what you have been prepared. Now, who will own what you have prepared? That's a question. Verse 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. See, to be rich toward God is more important than to have wealthy riches or earthly riches. They were rich in faith because they understood the great salvation that God had brought to them. Another passage I'd like you to turn to is found in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, 17 through 19. And of course, this is someone who has wealth, but the admonition is for them to be rich in good deeds if they do have wealth. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy, being the young pastor of the church at Ephesus, he say, instruct those, verse 17, instruct those, 1 Timothy 6, who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them 
to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So there's the admonition to someone God does bless with riches and wealth, that they make sure that they are rich toward God and rich in good works. So there's a rich in the privilege that, privileges that God gives his children. We are not merely children of a president or prime minister or a king, but we are children of the king of kings, the Lord of lords, which is a tremendous privilege. And of course, we are also privileged to be rich in hope and rich in joy and rich in peace and rich in happiness and rich in contentment and rich in eternal accomplishments. When God's people are lacking in temporal wealth for the sake of Christ and a good conscience, the Lord makes it up to them in spiritual riches, which are much more satisfying and enduring. So this church, the three things they're experiencing, they're experiencing suffering, they're experiencing poverty, and that is a physical poverty, and they're also experiencing a religious poverty in the sense they were being slandered. Verse number nine, notice, I know your, I know your blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So religious slander that came against them. Everywhere they went, they were being slandered. And they most likely were being slandered by the false teachers who had claimed to be Jews but were really not. All through the book of Acts, again, the Jews respond to the preaching of the apostles. And how do they respond to that preaching? Well, here's one passage in chapter 13 that says, And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. They were blaspheming what he, what he was saying. And, of course, what he was saying is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was preaching about the resurrection and the judgment to come and turning the Gentiles to the Lord. And they were jealous and began to religiously slander them. So these, in other words, these are, in this passage, these are, these are not actual Jews who were circumcised in their heart, but these are Jews but not converted. In verse number 9, blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So these Jews were very religious, but of course, Jesus reveals who they really worshipped and followed. It says that they were not of the synagogue of God, but they were of the synagogue of who? Satan. That does reveal something to us. And what it reveals to us is that behind suffering is often the manipulation of Satan against God's people. 
So this was an assembly, all right, but it was an assembly of the devil. Jesus told the Jews who claimed they were the children of Abraham that and thought they were heading to the kingdom of God. Find, he, he told them that they were not heading to the kingdom of God at all. In fact, that is specifically taught in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. If you notice the conversation that Jesus has with the Jews there, you'll find that he indicates and identifies where they're really at, and they didn't think they were there. And that's usually the, the case when somebody thinks they are right with God. They think that they're in the in crowd. They think they're actually good enough that God would look at them and say, hey, come on in, you've been a good guy. And they find out when God evaluates them, well, that's not the case at all. If you take your Bibles and look at John chapter 8, verse 39, you'll see that there Jesus is saying to Jews who think they are the children of Abraham and that they are actually hearing the words of God are not hearing the words of God at all and not receiving what God's giving them. And if you notice in John chapter 8, verse 39, it says, They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Well, what, what were the deeds of Abraham? Well, in this one case could be is that Abraham received God's word and Abraham received God's messengers and servants. And he acted appropriately towards them because he believed God. Well, verse number 40 says of John chapter 8, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said in verse 42 to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Verse 43, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil and want to do the desire of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is the liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, Because, but because I speak truth to you, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. Now that was a pretty severe blow to the Jews. See, Jesus, these Jews think they are in the in crowd. They're going to the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells them, no, you're on the outside crowd. You're not going to the kingdom of God. Because you don't receive the words of God. You don't receive the servant of God. You don't receive the message of God. So Jews in Samarino bitterly oppose Christianity. And were motivated by Satan to instigate attacks against the church there. 
And don't misunderstand at this point any church or gathering or assembly that preaches a gospel other than the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as found in the scriptures, they are also a synagogue of Satan. Because synagogue really is a word that just means a coming together, assembly of people that meet together. And don't forget this, that the the true gospel of Jesus Christ has always been and will always be troublesome to the religious community. And the reason for that, and there could be several reasons, the first could be that the gate to heaven is narrow. And the church can't stand behind multiple points of you as being legitimate. The second thing could be that if the church, if the Christian gospel is true, and it is, everything else is a lie. Every other religion is a lie. Every other way that a person proposes to be right with God is a lie. If Christ alone saves, those who do not believe in him are doomed. And of course, uh, uh, another thing could be that the church can't, can't lead sinners to salvation if it presents one road as being as good as any other road. A lot of times the, the, the truth is, is usually uh, postured in this way that, you know, hey, listen, there's one mountain and we're all heading to the top of the mountain. You're coming your way and He's coming his way and she's coming her way. But we're all making, we're all heading up in the same place. Well, that, that's the furthest thing from the truth. That is not the truth. See, the bottom line is the gospel is exclusive, and that doesn't go over well today. The gospel, the gateway is narrow. That Jesus is the only way. Living in a pluralistic society, culture in which everybody's opinion is supposed to be valid, and every way we think that we can be right with God is supposed to be legitimate, well, see, there's always going to be trouble. So that means soon as, don't be taken by surprise if you give the gospel and it's not received with joy. Because you'll realize that when you give the gospel, it convicts, it shows people where they're wrong in their thinking. In fact, the political slander that came against this church at Samarina, they were saying the Christians were cannibals. Look at the Lord's table. Eat my body, drink my blood. All right? They're they're saying these people are cannibals, and they were also accusing them of gathering for orgies because they would call their gatherings love feasts and misinterpreting what that meant. They also were saying that the Christians were tampering with families because people would come to Christ and their families would be broken up because they would have to leave their families. Maybe it's a Jewish family and they would be ostracized and kicked out and destroyed the family unit because they came to Christ. 
They were considered to be atheists, too, because Christians had no images to bow down and worship. How can you worship a God who's unknown? How can you worship a God you cannot see? And they were considered the atheist. Also, they were considered politically disloyal. They could not say that Caesar or the emperor was Lord or burn incense to him. They also were accusing Christians as being incendiaries. Why? Because they taught the world would end by fire. And of course, is the world going to end by fire? Yes, because it tells us in Scripture. It's not going to be flooded next time. It's going to be burnt next time. And the Lord gives us clear indication of that. So if you're a Bible toter, if you are intolerant to other positions, then you are going to be considered a racist. You're going to be considered narrow-minded. You're going to be considered a bigot. You're going to be considered all kinds of names that are being thrown out there today because all the things that are going on that we see going on in our government are really focused and are going to be narrowly focused on just a few groups. And it's one of the groups is going to be Christians. Christians, we read scripture like this and we must, we must begin to prepare ourselves that persecution is coming our way. And with the internet and how fast information gets around the world, when it comes, it will come quickly. It's already happening, but we can't sit on our laurels to think it's not. We really can't. And that's why I think that our prayer time should be more fervent than ever because of the days in which we live. So you can see that this little church was under some heavy satanic assault and there was plenty of ammo both politically and religiously to shoot at them. Also, you can see that only real disciples of Jesus Christ could possibly stay in a church like this. In other words, persecution thins out the ranks. No would-be disciple, no fence straddler would understand such a place and reason in their minds to stay there. They would have to get out. And that's what persecution does. And could you see now why there's no condemnation against the church? Why is there no condemnation? Because of persecution. Because persecution weeds out people who are not serious, who are not really converted, who are not genuine believers in the body of Christ. And uh, it weeds them right out. And so what, are you, what you're left with is you're left with a true church. That's what you're left with. Now, with all that going on, and with all the trouble that came against them, it doesn't seem here that they had prayer meetings for the Lord to deliver them from these things. But look at the counsel the Lord gives. He gives two commands to them in verse number 10 of chapter 2. And look at the commands he gives. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The two commands are don't be afraid and secondly, be faithful unto death. I don't know about you, but that, those are pretty heavy <laughs> commands. I have to really believe I really have to have a relationship with Christ. I really have to understand theologically what's going on for me to stick, for you to stick. But that's exactly what we're called to do. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. See, the risen Christ conquered the worst that the persecution can do to you to take your life. And the Lord is not promising here health, wealth, or prosperity. He does not dangle before them the promise that they shall find things easy and pleasant. Neither will, does he dangle before them that you're going to get out of your trouble or get out of your suffering or get out of the political slander that you're under. He doesn't say that to them. He says, don't fear. Now, that has to bring us back to the original character of Jesus that was presented to us in the beginning of this verse, that Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I have the last word, that I was dead and I'm alive. I'm the one who defeated Satan and death. So if you're going to trust anything, trust in who I am, and that's exactly what they were doing. And, of course, that scripture comes to mind and maybe if it's, it's come to your mind already, the, that one passage in Matthew chapter 10, verse number 28, you remember what it says? It says this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So who, who are they to fear? They're to fear their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's who to the, they're to fear. And because they're to fear him, they don't have to fear the Jews that are against them. They don't have to fear the suffering. They don't have to fear the slander. They just have to trust him. And he gives them also four heads up. In verse 10, he says four things to them. Number one, don't fear what you're about to suffer. In other words, you will suffer in some way. I already know that. I've taken care of that. Secondly, a heads up in verse number 10, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison. The devil is behind the persecution of believers, and the devil here meaning the accuser, he's the one who accuses the brethren. He acted through this, these Jewish accusers against Christ and his followers. And these are the false charges that are brought against Christians from the Jews. There's nobody to defend them on the earthly realm, in the earthly realm. There's, the politics aren't going to defend them. The religious systems aren't going to defend them. The religious people aren't going to defend them. The believers, believers have, have absolutely, on the human level, no defense except Christ himself and what he said. A third heads up in verse number 10 is that the purpose of satanic opposition is to test us. 
so that you will be tested. Why, why, why do believers need to be tested, even for a short period of time, to see whether they're in the faith, whether they're genuine? Any, any metal that you bring to a jeweler, if you, it's just a lump you're going to dump it on the table, he's going to have to test that metal to see what, how genuine that metal is, how pure it is. So testing always comes by persecution to believers. The short time of persecution is for the faithful. The time of trial, he's saying to them, will be short. In other words, you're not going to suffer for a long time. But the duration of your joy is going to be forever. And then the Lord gives them the challenge and the promise. And I want you to notice the promise that he gives them, the challenge. One concluding challenge, he says, be faithful unto death, which he already, I already mentioned that this is really faithful unto not physical death. Or, yes, it, it is faithful unto physical death, but it means something way more. That being faithful unto death is really a forward-looking faith. A faith that calls for a full evaluation of one's present lifestyle, one's present goals, one's present pursuits in light of the one approaching that one defining moment in history when we will see Jesus coming on the clouds of power or in his presence after physical death. That we are being faithful while we're living in the realm which God called us, the time in which God called us, we're being faithful to the things the scriptures tell us to be faithful to. We're not being pushed to the left or to the right. We're walking on the narrow path, and we're going to do it, and we are purposed to do it until we die, until death. So we could ask ourselves some questions concerning this passage is, so what are you doing to be ready for the day when your hope is revealed? What are you doing? If Jesus was revealed today, what have you been doing that prepares you for that day? How does your daily routine connect with the day of Christ's coming? How is what you are doing today an expression of your faithfulness to Christ? Can the person left to the left of you or the right of you say to you, that person is faithful to Christ? See, he, he is telling them, listen, be faithful unto death, that they know they are faithful. To know you are faithful is important, especially if you are going to realize, I can lose my life for being a Christian. I can lose my life for being a Christian. So that's why the Lord says this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, he gives them two crowning promises. And notice what he says. He says, I will give you the crown of life. To receive a crown of life is really to receive the reward of eternal life that symbolizes victory, an overcomer. 
It has always been a consistent message in the Word of God. Present trouble, future reward. Even in the Gospel of Mark, where when he was talking about persecution, he says to his followers, you will have persecution. So Jesus, right up front, never offered an easy road to any believer. And that's always the cost of discipleship. He puts before those who will repent of their sin and believe in Jesus that there will be a cost. Some loss, some suffering, some uncomfortable uneasiness, some humbling of self, some killing of our passions and desires and personal goals, some adjusting of what we think or thought life should have been or where we should be at at a particular point in our walk with the Lord. And if suffering really comes into this world, we are going to have to go back to Scripture and say to ourselves, the Lord really told us a long time ago that these things may take place. Because the future reward is eternal life. That there is an age to come. And eternal life is, is not a reward for forsaking outward relations or inward affections or enduring other difficulties for Christ's sake. Eternal life always and only is by the mercy and the pure grace of God to those who would believe. So the reward is certain. And it will be uh, paid out in full in the life to come. So the first crowning promise is that I will give you a crown of life. But then he says this, secondly, if you notice in verse number 11 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. See, it's not the physical death one needs to be concerned about. The great leveler is not physical death. The great leveler is the second death. That is the final judgment that separates an unbeliever from God's mercy and loving kindness forever. If you... Just go forward to Revelation chapter 20. You'll notice in verse number 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So those who are the servants of the Lord's coming back with him to this earth during the millennial reign of Christ are given this promise that this second death will not hurt you. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill your soul because your soul is mine. It's my possession. 
I died for it. I secured your eternal salvation forever. I washed away the sin that could keep you out of my presence, and you are clean. You have the righteousness of Christ. So this death cannot hurt you. Some people say Christians only die once. Everybody else dies twice, physically, and then they die the second death. And then if you look also at verse number, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 and 15, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now the Bible gives us more information that the second death is the lake of fire, not Hades. Hades is actually a temporary place that is really unloaded into the lake of fire after the great judgment, the great white throne judgment where God's books are going to be open and he's going to judge everybody's life fairly based on how they live their life. Of course, it, they, their life will be separated from God, but nonetheless, God is a fair judge. And anybody who is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is eternal death, which is a conscious existence in a resurrected body, in a, an eternal place, a person paying for their sin forever. The Lord says, that will not hurt you if you are in Christ. So you see how they can be faithful. You can see how they don't have to fear death because of this. And then Revelation 21 and verse number 8, he says this, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, that's what a person needs to be rescued from. And the only one to be rest, to rescue somebody from the second death is Jesus Christ. The second death is eternal torment. Death and Hades join the false trinity in the eternal torment and complete the stages by which God eradicates evil from all eternity. Their names are not written in the book of life because they have rejected God's call to repentance. So both the saved and unsaved have responded to the call of God and the sacrifice of the Lamb, and that has determined their destinies. The saved escape the second death and head into bliss, while the unsaved, on the basis of their choices and the judgment of a sovereign God, head to eternal torment. That's it. There's no middle ground. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as a middle ground. So this is all the more urgency that's placed upon us to come to Christ if you haven't yet. So don't put it off anymore. So how is it that this church 
has no declining love, no bad doctrine, no one tolerating sinful practices, no spiritual complacency or deadness, no indifference or hypocrisy. How is it that they don't have that there? There's only one answer, persecution. Persecution does something that nothing else can to purify the church and make it ready for the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning again for the word of God. We see that in the word of God, Lord, we, we are made, uh, we are given clear instruction for those uh, who are going to live in a time that persecution comes upon the church in a very specific way. And Lord, if we are heading that way sooner than we think, Lord, make us ready for that now. Let us not be so lulled to sleep by materialism and the easiness of life that we do not acknowledge that those things are very possible in our day. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us not to fear if they do come and that we would stand on the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done, knowing that even though we may lose our life, we may lose our jobs, we may lose our land, we may lose the ability to take care of ourselves financially, that you have not forsaken us, but you promised to us things that this world cannot offer and no one could take away. So Lord, let us have that kind of mindset. And as we do, Lord, I pray that you would protect us, remind us of what the truth is so we can live faithfully every single day of our life and organize our life in a way that we know that we are living for you. And so, Lord, we want to cast our care upon you tonight because we know, Lord, these things do cause anxiety. Uh, we know, Lord, that they uh, could be upsetting to us. But I just pray, Lord, that we learn to rest in you and trust you. For you have been faithful. You will always be faithful. You are the first and the last. You have the first word and the last word in all these things. Because, Lord, you are the judge of all men. And, Lord, for those in Christ, the judgment has already been taking place. And you have taken that judgment, satisfied the justice of the Father, and you have granted us eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we praise you for that and thank you for all that you have and will do. In Christ I pray, amen.